So every year on uh, October 31st, our family has what we call a referween party. And what this is is a combo Halloween slash Reformation Day party. And one of the things we do together every year on our referween party is, yes, we dress up as uh, sometimes Protestant reformers. Sometimes I'll dress up as Martin Luther. Alicia dresses up as Catherine Luther. Uh, my girls might dress up as Pope Leo or something like that. Sure, sometimes we branch out and we do other things, Stranger Things or maybe the Avengers. But... Um, But every year on Referee, we watch together the movie that you just saw a clip from, Luther. I don't know, has anybody seen the movie Luther? So if you haven't, do yourself a favor and go home and watch it. It's in my top five favorite movies of all time. I've seen that movie like dozens of times, and I'll watch it a dozen more and still love it. But the scene that you just watched is at the very end, and it is a dramatic depiction of an event in the Reformation. Uh, it was when uh, the princes of Germany gathered together under the leadership of Luther and Melanchthon uh, to present to the then emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V, their confession of faith, as well as requests from him permission to have Bibles printed in German and then handed out to the German people. You see, one of the things that happened during the Protestant Reformation, one of the goals of the Reformers was to get the Bible into the language of the people because up to that point, uh, the Bible had only been in Latin and the people of Germany couldn't read Latin and so they just didn't have God's word in their own language. And so one of the things that Martin Luther did, among many, many other things, was he translated the Bible into the German language, and then they had these Bibles distributed and read. And so here, uh, under threat of their own lives, they're asking to have these Bibles printed and spread out. Now, as it goes in uh, the history of the German Reformation, uh, they were given permission to have these Bibles distributed. But uh, a few years later, John Wycliffe would not be so fortunate uh, Wycliffe uh, went through great lengths to have the Bible translated into English, and then he himself was convicted and drawn up on charges and brought before the king of England, and he would ultimately be strangled and burned for his work of translating and his efforts to have the Bible put into the hands of the people. The very last thing Wycliffe prayed, as the story goes, was God opened the eyes of the king of England. And within four years of the death of Wycliffe, uh, the king of England himself would end up having these Bibles uh, translated and printed and distributed to the British people or to the English. And so um, I just wanted to pause before we even pray and just think for a moment about the heritage, the history that we enter into this space on the heels of and the great lengths so many people before us went through uh, to have the Bible preserved and copied and translated and put into our own language so that we can have copies of the Bible ourselves. And even today, I, I think there's some two dozen countries in the world today where the Bible is outlawed. And so it's a great privilege, it's a great honor, it's a great opportunity for us to have God's word in our very laps and in our in our possession. So let's just pray as we prepare to open up God's word as we continue in in our series, What is the Bible? By the way, before we pray, 
wanted to remind you that we have a Q&A session in between first service and second service. And so if anything I say today evokes a question uh, about the Bible, kind of how we got it, what, what this is about, or something from the content of the talk today, invite you to come to our uh, Q&A time uh, five minutes after we end this service. We'll meet back in here and we'll just spend some time uh, in engaged in dialogue and questions. So does that sound good? How you guys doing? Guys, good? All right, let's pray. Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and minds and that you would speak, that you would make us attentive to your voice, and that in attending to your voice, we might be molded and shaped to be your faithful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, my daughter Mia, who's in a literature class at Pasadena City College, asked me if I would read a short story that she had been given to read and then write a critical reflection on. And it was a story by Ernest Hemingway. And I like Hemingway. I remember Old Man in the Sea. It was enthralling. I like short stories. And so I said, yeah, I'll read it and think about it and give you some critical feedback on it. And so uh, I engaged in this story. And quite frankly, uh, I, I opened it and I just read it without much comprehension. It was strange. Uh, the story opened with a couple sitting in a railway station bar, having a drink and talking by and large about kind of the next drink they would order. And then the story ends. And that's it. And Mia had told me before, she said, this is supposed to be one of Hemingway's greatest stories. And I just thought to myself, the same thought I had sometimes when I go into a great art museum, and uh, you look at some beautiful work of art that's abstract, and you just think, like, it's worth $100 million. And you're like, I could have done that, right? <laughs> and... Um, I had this thought, you know, I'm like, I'm like what, what gives, you know? And, um, and I'm, I'm kind of racking my brain, and I didn't want to tell Mia that I didn't get anything out of the story because I wanted to present that I was intelligent and thoughtful and that I have a great appreciation for literature. And so I did what every good father would do, and I went online and I looked up Sparks Notes. <laughs> and I read to my honest, to my absolute shock that this was a story about abortion. And I was like, abortion? How? What? You know? And I looked back and I realized that I missed one critical word in the story, and it was the word operation. And once I saw that word, I went back in and I saw there was a lot of subtlety and nuance regarding the operation that was, have, that was being had, probably because in that day and age and the time that Hemingway was writing, this was not a, a topic you talked about, you know, openly. And so at any rate, I, I'm kind of like going back through, and all of a sudden, I, it, I, it starts like you know, light bulbs start going off in my mind as I'm reading through the story. I'm like, whoa, this story's deep. And then I read it again and then read it again. And each time I read it, it seemed like new layers of meaning began to open up for me. And Mia was doing the same thing. And she's like, dad, I think the story is about, you know, the relationship between men and women. And then another read, I think it's about communication. And no, I think it's making a claim about abortion. And, and what is the story about? And we start, you know, kind of like examining it. And oftentimes this is what good art does, Right? It invites us to go back, and it rarely yields all of its secrets the first time around, right? And it demands something of us, that we lean in, that we, 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 we listen to what the, the, the author or the artist is saying through what they have done. And oftentimes, the more you read, the more you go back, the more you see what you didn't see before. 
And I realized after the whole thing that the problem was not that Hemingway was so shallow and superficial or all the literary critics and the English teachers had just, you know, it was the emperor with no clothes. They had all bought into this great story. It wasn't great. It was just some lame thing. Like, no, actually, the one who was superficial and shallow was not Hemingway. It was the reader. And, you know, I realized as I was thinking about this that this is often our approach to the Bible. Oftentimes, the first time we read through a, a passage or a section or a book of the Bible, we just think, what's the, what gives? Like, what, what's the thing going on here? And it's easy to read the Bible in a superficial or a shallow way and then dismiss it. And this is not how we are invited to approach the Scriptures. It's interesting. Jesus gives this little parable. We heard it read in Mark chapter 4. He puts it like this. He says, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? He says, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. It's as if Jesus is saying, there is revelation about God. There is meaning. There is wisdom for life that is there for us to discover. It's there to be revealed. But he says this, pay attention to what you hear. Or that could be translated, pay attention to how you hear. Hear what? Well, earlier in the story or in the parables, we discovered that the hearing that he's talking about is how we hear, how we read, how we engage with the Bible, how we engage with God's word. And he says this, pay attention or take care how you hear. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you and more will be added to you. And then he says this, the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But to the one who has, he says, more will be given. In other words, if you hear, if you read well, if you read attentively, if you pay attention, then there is more meaning, there's more understanding, there's more revelation that is there for you when you lean in. But the point is you have to lean in, you have to read well, you've got to hear well, you want to listen well. To God's word. And so what I want to talk to you about today is what does that look like? What does it mean? How do we, as the people of God, listen to and attend to God's word? What does it mean or how do we read the Bible well? And I want to share with you three, maybe four things if we have time, uh, three or four things that it takes to read the Bible well. So number one, if you're going to read well, if you're going to take heed and gain more and more understanding and wisdom and meaning, number one, you need patience and persistence. You need patience and persistence in your reading. So the Bible, it can be hard to understand, right? I mean, I think we need to acknowledge that. I mean, there are some Psalms and Proverbs and, of course, the ethical teaching in the New Testament and maybe 1 Corinthians 13 that we can get. It's fairly accessible. But there's a whole lot of stuff in the Bible that's just hard to understand. I mean, just open to the second page and you find yourself in a garden with not one but two magical trees and a talking snake. And you think, what is going on? And a few chapters later, and you're in Genesis 9, and in Genesis 9, after a global flood, which is hard enough to understand, there's righteous Noah drunk and passed out naked in his tent. And his son Ham comes in and sees his father in all of his glory, and he goes and he tells his brother about it. And when drunk Noah finally sobers up and comes to and hears about it, he does what every good father would do. He curses his son Ham and all of his future descendants. 
One of these days, I'm going to write my own daily devotional on the Bible. I'm going to begin with that story. Have a blessed day, you know? (laughs) And, you know, to be honest, Genesis is one of the more straightforward books in the Bible. Exodus is similar, but, you know, you get to Leviticus and you're learning about wall fungus and skin disease and bodily emissions and how to properly arrange the body parts of an animal on a religious altar. Listen, the Bible is hard to read, and so we need patience and persistence. But let's just be clear why that is. Why is it that the Bible is hard to read? Well, number one, because the Bible is old. You know, the Bible is an ancient text. We talked about this last week. You know, it it was written, uh, you know, ages ago. You know, the newest parts are 2,000 years old. The oldest parts are 3,500 years old. And they had different categories of thoughts, and they asked very, very different questions than we do. And so the Bible was not originally written to late modern Americans. It was written to ancient pre-modern Israelites. And so it takes some patience and persistence to enter into what it's talking about. And of course, it's not just old. The Bible is also foreign. So this is the first line in the Bible, Can anybody read that? In the beginning, God created the heavens. Yes, we can translate, yes, it into English. I love it. So, you know, I I, I remember in seminary, when we had my, when I was in my first day of Hebrew, I remember they said, look, uh, for for most people, you know, said at, at at a, kind of like practical level, Hebrew is actually easier to learn. The, the rules are easier. Uh, the, it's not as complicated as Greek. But the thing that people find so difficult about Hebrew is it's just so other. It's just so strange. It's just so foreign. And when you, when you learn more and more about Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew language and the ancient Hebrew mindset, you realize that they, they operated in such different categories, they use language differently, and they draw upon simile and metaphor, and they, they use poetry and numbers, and there's a complexity and sophistication to this language that, that's beautiful and wonderful, but it's very, very different and foreign from our own. And of course, it was written in a very different place than what we grew up in. You know, we're in a technological age that followed along the heels of an industrial age. But the ancient world out of which these texts came is an agrarian society. It's very different. And it's in the Middle East. It's a very different part of the world. And and these these Jewish folks, they were in a very different social location from our own. You know, um, it's interesting, you know, when you think about uh, who who these Hebrews were, you know, they they were not a strong empire like, uh, you know, we're in the strongest, most militarily equipped, uh, most economically robust nation on the history, in the history of the world and, and on the planet. That was just not Israel. You know, they, for, for 400 years of their history, they were slaves. And then they were wanderers, homeless and landless in a desert. And then even when they had a monarchy, I mean, for the most part, they were harassed by larger empires to the north, like Assyria and Babylon, and, and, and the power in the south, Egypt. And, and so for the most of their history, I mean, they're oppressed and they're harassed and they're powerless and they're on the margins and, and, and to the eyes of the world, they're unimportant. And so it's just a very different place, a very different world that these texts came out of. 
And so it's just very easy for us to read these things. And because it's not in our thought patterns, it doesn't come out of our world, it doesn't come in our language, to just at times dismiss it. Or maybe if we accept it, to accept it at a very superficial level and not really realize what's really going on in these ancient texts that's just so interesting and beautiful. And so let me just uh, give you a couple examples of this. So um, probably a book that many of you read even before coming to church today, Leviticus. It opens like this. You know, there, there are you know, some, of, some of the great opening lines, you know, in literature, call me Ishmael, you know, Moby Dick, or in a hole in a ground there lived a hobbit, the hobbits, you know. And, and here's another great opener uh, of, of great literature. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring your offering, an, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. You know, Oftentimes, it's right here when we enter into a book like this where we start all of a sudden reading not about one type of animal sacrifice, but multiple. There's the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, the guilt offering, the peace offering. And uh, chapter after chapter, seven chapters full of animal sacrifices, how to slaughter the animal, how to arrange the animal, which parts to burn on the altar, which parts to eat yourself, which parts to take outside the camp and burn outside the camp. And you read this stuff and you're just like, Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. I mean, this is so foreign from our mindset. And we think, even we think like, this is, you know, some of us might think like, this is the, the problem with the Bible. It just feels so regressive and primitive. I mean, animal sacrifice? Who does that sort of thing anymore? Well, before we 21st century late modern Americans get too high and mighty, uh, we live in a nation that as of today, about 44 billion animals have been slaughtered in our country. Sure, it's out of sight, it's out of mind because we go down to Whole Foods or to Ralph's or to Costco or whatever, and we buy our meat in little packages. But it didn't begin there. It goes all the way. There's a whole story to how that animal got there. And in the ancient world, they also butchered and killed meat. But they, 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 they had a very particular, a very peculiar way in which they viewed these animals that they were about ready to slaughter. It's interesting. Before the animal ever got to uh, the, the, the point where their, their throat was slit and they were going to be, their blood was spilled before the altar, the the life and the dignity of that animal was respected. And they had these laws in ancient Israel, these primitive and regressive people, they had these laws such as, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. And you think, well, that's one of the biblical commands I fortunately will never have to break. You think, what's that about? Well, what it's saying is, look, you shouldn't maximize profit on the back of your animal. Let it eat while it's plowing out the grain. Care for, honor the dignity of that animal that's doing such labor for you. In fact, they honored the animal so much that when the Jews took Sabbath, the animals would also join them for Sabbath, and they would get a day of rest. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your ox nor your donkey nor any of your animals. Do you see what it's, he's commanding? That animals rest on Sabbath. 
He's honoring their labor and their work and their dignity. And then there's this little interesting command that's mentioned not once, not twice, but three times in the Torah, the Old Testament. You shall not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. You think, what is that about? Well, look, that's just sacrilege, he says. How dare you take that young goat, you know, that that you're going to eat and cook it in its mother's milk. Honor the dignity of the life of that animal. And then, of course, the Jews were commanded not to eat the blood of the animal. Why? Well, because the text said the life was in the blood, but you shall not eat the blood because the blood is the life. You must not eat the life with the meat. And I think what he's getting at there is you need to honor the life of this animal and recognize that this is a gift from the hand of God. So long before the animals would ever wind up being slaughtered at an altar, they lived this life of dignity. They were treated with honor as a creation of God. And then, of course, when they were uh, slaughtered there, what was happening? Well, very often it was an offering of gratitude saying, God, thank you that you have given this beast to me. And the, the, for the most part in the sacrificial system, yes, there was a couple types of offerings where the entire animal would be burned up, but very often the meat of the animal would be consumed oftentimes by the one offering the sacrifice and the priest together before the face of God, enjoying this meal in the face of God. And you know, when I think about kind of the symbolic world of ancient Israel and the internal logic of the sacrificial system and how they viewed and how they understood these animals as you enter in patiently, and persistently into that world and you seek to understand what's going on there, you start to recognize maybe it's not the, the, the ancient people of Israel that are regressive and primitive. Maybe it's late modern Americans and our 44 billion animals who are treated like hunts of meat that are raised in our factory farms in little battery cages or in crates that pigs live in. I mean, maybe we ought to be the ones who are critiqued by this ancient text. And I go through that simple example to say, look, there is a whole world that is full of wisdom and divine revelation underneath these ancient texts that many of us immediately, if, we don't, if we're not careful, we might dismiss. Can I give you one more? Maybe a more difficult one. So I think one of the most difficult uh, uh, sections of the Bible that we find, oh, it's so regressive, it's so primitive, and what's wrong with these people, is the book of Joshua where God commands the children of Israel to go in and to take the land of Canaan. And of course, there were already inhabitants in that land. And they're, for the most part, they're going to do battle and they're going to kill people and they're going to take that land. And we think, oh, how is this not genocide? How is this not imperialism taking in? But when you actually look at it in its historical context, you find something different. You know, there's this verse in Joshua 11. This is one of like the chapters, if you go there, like this is one one of these chapters that sort of like, you know, describes this sort of thing. But it it says, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. Who? Well, if you look at it in its context, there were kings in the land of Canaan, leaders of these city-states who were well-equipped at a military level because they had chariots and they had horses, which the children of Israel did not have. Why? Well, because the children of Israel were wanderers in the desert for the last 40 years. And what were they doing before that? Where they were slave labor for the previous 400 years before that. And so what you have is this marginalized group of people who have been brought out of the oppressive, violent, 
power-hungry world of Pharaoh. They've been taken out of that. God's gonna take them into Canaan and God's going to evict the current inhabitants of Canaan because they have been like Pharaoh, oppressive, violent, bloodthirsty. And God is gonna take them out of the land and God's gonna establish a new social order in that land that is marked by wholeness and justice and beauty that is described in the Torah. And he's gonna give this land to this group of marginalized, oppressed, beat up, harassed people. And he sends them in and he, and he tells Joshua, he says, don't be afraid of these well-equipped, well-armed uh, leaders. Why? Because by this time tomorrow, I'll hand them all over to you, slain. And you are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Why would he tell them to do that? He's telling them to destroy their implements of warfare. You know, uh, chariots and horses, they were like being well-equipped with tanks and, uh, you know, like that was high-caliber, high-tech uh, weaponry in the ancient world. Israel didn't have that. So he says, destroy those weapons of warfare when you take that land because your trust is not to be in the weapons of warfare. Your trust is to be in God. But I go through all this simply to say this. We need to enter sympathetically into these texts and stories and understand to whom they are written and the social context, the social study, the historical background. And before we go writing it up or superficially taking to say like, what do I need to patiently and persistently enter into if I'm gonna understand their world? So number one, if you're gonna read the Bible well, you need patience and persistence. But secondly, you can already tell after point one, this probably isn't gonna be a four-point sermon. It's gonna have to be a three-point sermon. But who knows? I might squeeze the last one in just... But secondly, you not only need, you need to be patient and persistent. Secondly, if you're going to be a good Bible reader, you need to think. You can't park your brain at the door when you open up the Bible. I remember at my old church, there was a, a guy who, um, who was a young earth creationist, and in an effort to kind of like explain uh, the, the fossil record, he suggested to me that perhaps what happened was that the devil invented uh, or the devil created uh, the bones of dinosaurs and then the devil buried them deep into the earth so that later generations would find them and be deceived into thinking that the earth was actually really old when it wasn't. And I just wanted to shake this guy and say, you need to think. Don't check your brain at the door. You know, I heard another pastor who, based upon uh, the story in Genesis 2 about a talking snake, suggested that prior to the fall into sin, that perhaps it was the case that all of the animals talked. And that's why Eve wasn't surprised when the snake was talking to him or talking to her. And I just thought, look, buddy, that's Narnia. That's not biblical theology. <laughs> like, you're not thinking, you're not engaging your brain. And listen, we need to engage our brain when we go to the Bible, not simply because, or not because we think, well, the Bible was simplistic and naive back then, and we need to think and conform it to modern day standards of science and technology and our modern day discoveries. No, you need to take time to understand this ancient text and engage your brain because it is brilliant and it is incredibly complex and sophisticated and beautiful. And there is so much going on in these ancient texts. You know, um, and, and I think so much in our modern day, can I just speak just personally? I can get a little bit frustrated on the commodification of the Bible in American culture. 
We live in such a consumer-oriented society, and so we rip texts out of context and we stick them on mugs and on uh, little calendars and on T-shirts and bumper stickers, and we put them on all kinds of uh, ridiculous Christian kitsch for sale in the Christian marketplace, and it just, it, it, it lowers, it creates a more shallow, superficial expression of Christianity. And the Bible is so much more robust and beautiful than that. You know, and I think oftentimes, um, you know, you've heard that phrase, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I think we could actually say, uh, we, could, we, could, we could actually say, God said it, uh, I interpreted it in a superficial way, and then I believed my superficial interpretation with great conviction, and nothing is settled. <laughs> and so we need to think We need to engage our minds and our hearts and understand that what we're dealing with in this collection of ancient writings is beautiful and it's deep. And and like any good art, it never yields its secrets the first time around. You gotta keep going back to it. Sometimes it's not until the 26th or the 27th time you listen to that song or you watch the film or you read the book. You're like, oh my gosh, I never saw that before. How could I have missed it? And this is the Bible, This collection of sacred, divinely inspired writings, there's so much here that is rich and meaningful and beautiful, but you have to engage your mind to get at it. And that's why uh, the, the Bible encourages a very particular kind of reading that it refers to meditative reading. You could say that the Bible is meditation literature. And so Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law they meditate day and night. That word meditate is a beautiful and interesting Hebrew word. It's a word that's used in other parts of the Hebrew Bible to describe a lion that is chewing on and kind of like gnawing on the bones of its prey. And you know, sometimes I'll put out the, not sometimes, every time I put dog food in front of my dog, Brutus, he immediately, almost with one breath, inhales the thing. But if I give Brutus a bone, Brutus will take that thing outside and you'll see Brutus just get lost in this bone, just chewing the thing, gnawing on it, absorbing from deep within its marrow, you know, the nutrients that are hidden deep within it. And this is the language, the word that's used to describe our approach to scripture. It is something we chew on over the long run. It's not something we just simply engage with. And I know some of us might think, well, like, can't God just give us a little more simple book? Why would you want that? Why would you want something that isn't so interesting and that demands so much and that can engage so many people throughout so many generations and so much academic scholarship and so much thought and so much, yes, the Bible is shallow enough for a child to play in, but it's deep enough for an, for an elephant to drown in. And there's depths there, but the way you get at it is through slow and meditative reading. Going back again and again, Biblical scholar Ellen Davis put it like this. She says, reading the text more slowly is essential for learning to love the Bible. As we know from other areas of experience, giving careful attention is not just the outcome of love, it is part of the process of growing in love. We love best those for whom we are obligated to give regular and demanding care, a child, an animal, a sick or elderly person, a plot of land, an old house. Inching patiently through scripture is an act of love. 
Blessed is the one who meditates, who chews on scriptures day and night and keeps going back and back. Why? Well, because this is a complex, beautiful, ancient, historic, incredible, sacred set of writings. But also, as we talked about last week, this is an incredibly interconnected, interwoven assortment of, of, of writings. You know, I showed this last week, and it's a, it's a diagram that demonstrates just how interconnected the Bible is. Each line down below represents a different passage of Scripture. The length of the line represents how many times that passage is quoted in other parts of the Scripture, and then the line takes you to those other places where it's quoted so that you begin over time to see these interconnections, and your mind just starts to be blown. And so let me just give you an example. Uh, in Mark chapter 14, you see Jesus and he's standing before the high priests. And they say in exasperation, tell us plainly, are you the Christ or not? And finally, after silence before their face, he opens his mouth and he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And I remember seeing this text years ago and thinking, this is a strange response. He tells these high priests, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. But the more I time I've spent over the years with this passage of Scripture, the more I've kind of spent time in the Scriptures, I started to see the interconnections. This passage in Mark 14.62 is a hyperlink that takes us back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where Daniel in his vision sees these crazy uh, beasts that are coming up out of the sea, which represent the beastly kingdoms of man that are being destructive and violent and oppressive and terrible all up and down the earth, you know, and they're, they're this is what they're doing. <laughs> they're just, you know, the, 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 the beasts coming out of the sea. And then there comes a point where the authority, the, the authority to exercise rule on God's earth is stripped away from the beasts, saying that the day is coming when inhumane, beastly, kingly rule will be stripped from humans. And it will be given, it says in the text, to one like the Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven and receives from him a kingdom and power and glory and authority, and over him is given rule over everything. And Jesus is saying before these high priests, you are going to see, I will be raised from the dead, I'm ascending to the Father's right hand, and all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, but... Daniel 7 is a hyperlink that takes us back even further to Psalm 110, which, uh, verse 1, which is actually the most alluded to and quoted verse in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. And it's, it's, it's calling to mind this, this idea of, the, of, of a son of David receiving a kingdom and power and authority, and underneath that authority, underneath the feet of the ruler that God gives humane authority to are going to be all of the enemies of God, sin and death and darkness. But that text takes you back even further to another text before that, Genesis 1, uh, Genesis, oh, did, where's, there it is. Takes us all the way back in the garden with that talking snake where there is this promise that one day uh, there is coming an offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And it says, he will bruise your heel, but he will 
bruise your head. And why? Well, it's because stepping on the head of the serpent, the powers of sin and death and darkness, is going to be the foot of the eternal Son of God. And so he says all authority in heaven is going to be committed to him. And so do you see the Bible is this radically interconnected, beautiful, complex set of writings that we need to attend to and pay attention to. And it demands a whole lifetime of study. It's demanded 2,000 years of study. And we still have just barely scratched the surface. All right, we'll do one more. Is that okay? All right. So you not only need persistence and patience if you're going to engage in the scripture with benefit, you not only need to think, but thirdly and finally, you need others. You need others. The beauty of the Reformation is that the Bible got put into the hands of every person. The challenge of the Reformation is that the Bible got put into the hands of every person. And each individual reader became their own pope, their own authority. And from that has sprung all kinds of heresy and weird teachings and doctrines and the splintering of Christianity over these last 500 years. But here's my point. When you go to the Bible, you can't go alone. When you go to the Bible, you need to come with a community of readers who have read before you, who have read beside you, who have read in different parts of the world from different social locations where they've had different experiences. And so they approach the text differently and they see things that you didn't see because of their difference from you. And because you're different, you experience the text differently, you come together and you have a greater understanding. Colossians 3 puts it like this, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. It says in you, but in the, in the Greek, it's, it's among you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The study of scripture is something that should be done in community, a global community, a historic community. There's a great example as to why this is so important that's taken from a book that uh, I was reading this last week. And it was called, um, What Do They Hear?, and the, the author is Mark Allen Powell, and it's interesting because he's a, he's a seminary professor, and he, he did this uh, scientific study where he got together 100 American Bible readers or Bible teachers, and he had them read together uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, I mean, of the, the, the prodigal son. And then he had 50 Russian Bible teachers read the parable of the prodigal son. Actually, he read it out loud to them, and he asked them this question. What, what are some of the details that stood out to you in the story? So they were going to come back, and they were going to retell the story. Well, there was one detail that 100% of all Americans saw, but only uh, 34% of Russians saw. And then there was another detail of the story that only 6% of the Americans saw, but almost every one of the Russians heard. And the detail that the Russians heard, but the Americans didn't was, and there was a famine in the land. These particular readers were from St. Petersburg, Russia, and it turned out that um, there was a horrible famine in St. Petersburg, Russia within uh, just after uh, World War II. And it was so bad that people were dying in the streets and tens of thousands of people suffered under this famine and it was just stuck in the collective memory. And so when they heard the story, they caught on to that detail. 
The detail that the Americans heard, but only 34% of the Russians heard, was the detail, and he wasted all of his money. And uh, the, the Mark Allen Powell thought this was so fascinating. Uh, he was in another part of the world, Tanzania, and he wanted to conduct the same experiment and, and see like, well, what's, what, what, what do the, the Tanzanians see was the problem that happened in the prodigal son's life, you know? Is he gonna see that he went out and he spent all of his money, he wasted his money in, in living, or are they gonna see, oh, well, there was a famine in the land and that's what happened to him? And so he read the story to them, asked them the same question, asked them what was the problem that the boy encountered? And almost across the board, the Tanzanian interpreters said, the problem in the story was that no one gave that boy anything to eat. Now, when I read that, I thought, was that detail in the story? <laughs> and indeed it was. It says, when he went out and wasted his, his money and there was a famine in the land, it said, and no one gave him something to eat. And many of these people knew from their experience what it was like to be in a foreign land as an immigrant and how important it is to depend upon the, hospi the hospitality of the land that you were in. And they went on to talk about how uh, the, the, the far country that the boy went into and the father's house represented two kingdoms. One kingdom of scarcity, where you go out and it is cold and it is calloused and no one gives you anything to eat. And that kingdom was represented by the Pharisees who were inhospitable to the sinners that needed the hospitality and the generous love of God. And that was contrasted with the kingdom of the Father's house where there was warm welcome and there was abundance and there was plenty. I heard that and my mind was just blown. <laughs> now, the question is, is, which reading is right? Well, it's interesting because in all readings, the, the main point of the story is the same. The solution to the problem is the largesse of the father's love that welcomes prodigals back home. And yeah, it, there was a famine in the land. And, and yeah, he wasted his money and nobody gave him anything to eat. And it was all a part of the problem. But do you see, it's when we read in community and we listen to other voices than our own that we actually begin to come to a greater comprehension of who God is and what he's done in this world and what he calls us into. And so we need to read the Bible in community with others. We need others. I'll just throw this in for free. Because <laughs> you were asking for it. I could tell, Mel, you were like, come on. What's point number four? Listen, you not only need persistence and patience, you not only need to think if you're gonna, you not only need others. There's a lot of other stuff you need, by the way. We'll get into that in the coming weeks. So if you're like, you didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. We got a whole week coming on that one. So don't go spiritualizing stuff to me. I mean, don't send me emails, you know, no. You need hunger. But you need hunger for the right thing. If the hunger you approach the Bible with is a hunger to get justification and support for your political ideology that you've embraced in 21st century America, you are going to be left hungry. If you go to the Bible looking for fodder to feel like you're right and you're assured that you're right and everybody else out there is wrong, you are going to be left hungry. But if you go to the scriptures with a hunger for God, with a hunger to know the Father's heart, with a hunger to encounter the true and living God, 
If you go to scriptures with this sense like, I'm a, I, on my own, I'm a fool, I'm in the dark, I need guidance, I need wisdom, I need direction, I need somebody to show me how to be and live in this world. If you go to the scriptures with a hunger for God and with a hunger for mercy and a hunger for hope and a hunger for meaning and a hunger for direction, you will be satisfied. You will find that all those who seek find and all those who ask receive an answer and all those who knock will find the door opened. Open to greater lives of meaning and fullness and satisfaction as we encounter God in deeper and deeper ways in his word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we go out from this place and we head into our week, that you would expose that deep hunger that we have in our hearts for you, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would cultivate in our hearts virtues of patience and love and attention as we enter into this sacred collection of writings that you have given to us. And I pray, God, that through your word we might know you and we might know your son, Jesus, and we might be drawn into greater fellowship with him. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.